Aren't you thankful that God's love endures? Aren't you thankful for that? Uh, let me ask you a question, if I can, before we get into God's Word. If, if you have someone in your life that you know God's love endures, God loves when we don't love, but they're far from God, they're not, they're not living in God's love right now, and you're burdened for them, would you raise your hand right now? you have someone like that in your life? Well, here's what I want us to do. I just want us to bow our heads. And I want every one of you who raised your hand to just, just to cry out, not out loud, but cry out their name before God right now. And ask God just to, to show his love to them. And thank the Lord that he, his love will endure. He will never give up on them. And pray that God will remove move everything that is keeping them from experiencing God's love in their life, um, individually, personally. So let's pray that, and, and, and then I will, I will close this in prayer. So take a moment and just pray that right now. Father God Almighty, I can't, I can't speak for anyone else in this room, but there are times, there are times in my life when I cry out to you for your intervention in, in, in people's lives, people that I love, people that I care about that are far from you. It just seems like, Lord, you're, you're not hearing. It, it, it seems like you've given up. It, it seems like seems like my prayers are not availing anything. And yet, Father, as we sing a song like this, it reminds us of, of your word and, and the promises of your word that your love endures. And you love us and you love those we love even when they are unlovable. And so, Father, right now I pray that you will just hear the cries of your people for those we love. And even in this moment, you would touch their hearts and begin to stir their spirits and draw them to you. And Lord, I pray that they will realize that you and you alone can love them with the love that they need. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 13. This morning as we continue our series in this incredible book, throughout history, it seems that we as mankind have been obsessed with feats of strength. We, we hear stories about, about mythological people like Thor, Hercules, Theseus. We, we, we read of superheroes and we watch movies of superheroes, people like the Incredible Hulk and Superman, people who have incredible power and can do incredible things. But, but then there are those stories of actual people, stories of men like John Holtam. He was born in 1845. He was known as the Cannonball King. He would stand on one side of the stage and a cannonball would be shot out of a cannon to him. And he would catch that cannonball 
with his hands and his chest. The first time he tried that, he lost three fingers. Can you imagine that? A cannonball, a 50-pound cannonball being catapulted out of a cannon and you catch it with your hands and your chest. That was John Holtum. And then there was Thomas Thompson. He was born in 1702. His most famous act of strength occurred on May the 28th, 1741. He lifted three barrels of water. And you may not think that's anything, but these three barrels of water weighed 1,386 pounds. That's a lot of weight. And then there's Angus McCaskill. Angus McCaskill is known as Giant McCaskill, and many say he's the strongest man who ever lived. He was born in 1825. McCaskill's most famous feat was he lifted a ship's anchor that weighed 2,800 pounds to his chest. 2,800 pounds. He lifted that to his chest. But the most famous of all, the the most famous man of strength, at, at least for those of us who grew up hearing Bible stories, is Samson. Movies have been made about Samson. Legends have been told about Samson, but but Samson wasn't simply a myth. Samson isn't the result of folklore. Samson was a real man who lived in history, who was called by God. And four chapters in the book of Judges deal with Samson's life. He was the very last of the appointed judges that we read about in the book of Judges. Now, if you were going to make a modern movie of Samson's life, you would have to rate it R. Because it is filled with, with, with drunkenness, it is filled with, with sex, it is filled with violence, and it is filled with death. And as we begin to read this story, we are intrigued. Because as we read it, everything that has happened before happens again. The people of, of God are, are caught up in evil. They again do evil in, in God's sight. And, and the Bible says that God hands them over to the Philistines. And yet this time, unlike every other time in the book of Judges, the people of God do not cry out to God. There's no mention of them crying out to God. They were in the midst of their longest oppression, their longest slavery to date. They have been oppressed for 40 years, and yet they don't cry out to God. And the reason is, is because they have become comfortable in their slavery. They have become accustomed to the sinful practices of the Philistines. And and because of that, they no longer want to be delivered. You see... The danger of the Israelites during this time was not extermination. It was not elimination. It was assimilation. They were becoming one with the pagan Philistines. And and I believe that that is our greatest danger today. We have become comfortable with the sinful practices of the world. We have become so accustomed to to the evil in the world that, that all the evil that we see no longer seems that wrong. You see, the greatest danger that we have today, the greatest danger that the church faces today is is not extermination, it's not elimination, it's 
assimilation. It's becoming a part of the world that we're called to change. I mean, how else can we describe what has happened socially, morally, in the last 30 or 40 years? How can we, how can we understand what has happened to our land, to the landscape of our land, if it is not because we as Christians are being assimilated by the world? And it's not that we don't vote in elections. It's, it's not that we don't come to church and moan and groan and whine about what's going on in the world. It's that that's all that we do. It seems like we're not willing to really pay the price to see God deliver our land. And yet, even though the nation of Israel had gotten comfortable in their sin, they were being assimilated into the world, God sent them a deliverer. They didn't want it. They didn't ask for it. But God, in his grace and his mercy, provided them a deliverer nevertheless. It's it's kind of like what God does today. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You, You see, God doesn't wait for us to cry out to him. God doesn't wait for us to fall on our knees before him. God doesn't wait for us to hit the bottom and then look up. No. When we are in the midst of our rebellion against God, when we could care nothing about God or his plans for our life, God sent a deliverer. God sent a savior. And his name is Jesus. Now the deliverer that that God sends this time is different than every other deliverer. Every other deliverer that we read about in the book of Judges had flaws in their life. Othniel, he was an older man. Ehud, he was, he was handicapped. Shamgar, he, he had no weapons. All he had was an ox go. Deborah, she was a woman called to lead in a society filled with men. Gideon was filled with fear and Jephthah was born on the wrong side of the tracks. And yet here comes Samson. And Samson has no flaws that we can see whatsoever. And that is the person that that God called, that God raised up to deliver his people. Now, Samson's story begins with with an incredible announcement. There's a woman, she was the wife of Manoah, and, and she is evidently praying one day when an angel of the Lord appeared to her. And even though she had no children, the Bible says she is barren, she could not have children. The angel of the Lord said, you are going to give birth. But she isn't going to give birth to just any child. This was going to be a special child. We are told that that he was dedicated to God before his birth. I want you to listen to the announcement in, in chapter 13, verse 5. I want to read it to you from the God's Word translation. It says, you're going to become pregnant. This is what the angel of the Lord said to Manoah's wife. You're going to become pregnant. You're going to have a son. You must never cut his hair because this boy will be a Nazarite dedicated to God from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the power of the Philistines. Now, from before his birth, God had a plan for Samson. 
The Bible says that he would be a Nazarite. Now, now the regulations for a Nazarite was found in Numbers chapter 6. That word Nazarite literally means consecrated. It means set apart. And so a Nazarite was someone who was consecrated to God, set apart for God. Now, most often, a Nazarite would take a vow for a specific purpose, a specific reason, and for a specific period of time. But the Bible says that Samson would be born a Nazarite and he would live a Nazarite. God was calling him from birth and he was to be set apart for his entire life. Now, the Nazarite vow included three things. First of all, you could not drink or eat anything from the fruit of the vine, from from a grapevine. Second, you could not touch anything dead. And then third, you could not cut your hair. Each of these things were signs and symbols that you were set apart from sin and you were set apart to God for his purpose. But the truth of the matter is, even though we discover that Samson was set apart, dedicated from before his birth, each and every one of us are. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I called you, I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Listen to me. No matter who you are, no matter where you were born, no matter what you think your gifts and abilities are today, God called you for a purpose, for a reason, even before you were born. So here was Samson. He was dedicated to God from birth. But not only was he dedicated to God, he was raised by godly parents. Look at verse 8. It says, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is about to be born. So Manoah and his wife know that they're going to have this baby. They're a godly couple living in a pagan land. And their desire is to honor God with this gift of a boy that they're going to be given. And so he prays, teach us how to bring up this boy. Let me tell you, that's a prayer every parent should pray every single day. Lord, teach me how to bring up this boy. Lord, teach me how to bring up this girl. Give me wisdom. And then as we pray that, we get into God's Word. We discover what God's Word says, and we follow God's Word. So here was Samson. He was dedicated before his birth. He was raised by godly parents. But third, he was blessed by God. Look at verse 24. It says, the woman gave birth to a boy. She named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. Now listen, that's a big deal. Several years ago, we did a series that we entitled The Blessed Life, where we studied this Hebrew word, Barak, which is translated in this passage, blessed. There are two different Hebrew words that are translated in the Old Testament, blessed. One of them simply means to be happy, but the other word has much more meaning than that. And that's the word that is used right here. The word literally means divine favor. It means that God's hand of a favor is intervening in Samson's life. Robert Morris says this, being blessed is having supernatural power, God's power working for you. So in other words, God was working on Samson's behalf in a unique way. Talk about being prepared for greatness. Dedicated by God from birth, 
raised by godly parents, blessed by God, but that's not all. We, we see that he was also moved by the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 25 says, the Spirit of the Lord began to work in Samson's life. You see, not only was God working from the outside to bless Samson, God was working from the inside to empower Samson. David recognized the importance of the Holy Spirit in our life. In Psalm 51, that that passage we read about, that passage of confession after David committed that terrible sin of, of adultery and then murder, and he's confessing his sin to God. In chapter 51, verse 11 of Psalm, David said, Do not cast me from your presence. And then listen, Or take your Holy Spirit from me. See, this is a big deal. In the New Testament, we're told that at Pentecost, the Spirit of God came upon every believer. And and when you and I are saved, we are born in the Spirit of God. We are filled with the Spirit of God. This is unique from the way it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would, would come upon a person but would not stay with a person. So David is saying, do not take your spirit from me. And so as we read chapter 13, we we begin to think in our mind that Israel is going to experience something special. I mean, finally, there is a deliverer who has the power and the blessing and the Spirit of God all to bring a revival to the nation of Israel. I mean, that's what we're thinking. Finally, a worthy deliverer. And yet, as we continue to read his story, we discover that's not the case. And we discover that a good childhood does not guarantee a good adulthood. As Samson becomes an adult, it it seems that, that he is stirred by something more than the Spirit of God. As we turn over to chapter 14, we discover that somehow, someway, Samson has undone everything that his parents did. Somehow, someway, Samson has rejected everything that God has done in his life. Listen to me. The best parenting in the world cannot force a child to love and serve the Lord. God's calling upon a child's life cannot force that child to love and serve the Lord. God's blessings, God's spirit cannot force a child to serve the Lord. And we see that in Samson. Samson is set apart by God. He is raised by loving parents. He was blessed by God, empowered by the spirit. He had a great future in store for him, but instead... We discover in chapter 14 that he is controlled by the flesh. Instead of being controlled by the spirit, he's now being controlled by the flesh. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, one day when Samson was in Timnah, the land of the Philistines, one of the Philistine women called his his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. You see, Samson's problem wasn't that he didn't have the physical strength to deliver Israel. The problem was that he didn't have the spiritual strength 
to deliver Israel. He couldn't control his fleshly desires. He he sees this hot-looking Philistine woman. He wants her, and he says, I've got to have her. You see, each and every one of us are either going to be stirred by the Holy Spirit or we're going to be stirred by our flesh. If we're stirred by the Holy Spirit, we will walk in obedience. If we're stirred by our flesh, we will walk in disobedience. Understand, your worst enemy is not a demon from hell. Your worst enemy is not the world in which we live. Your worst enemy is your own sinful desires. Are you tracking with me? Are you listening? It's not the world that's going to bring you down. It's not demonic possession or oppression that's going to defeat you. It's your own sinful flesh. Proverbs 25 Solomon says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Here's Samson. He's called to be a spiritual leader in Israel, and yet he's more controlled by sexual lust than he is by the Spirit of God. And we see this over and over again in this story. He is drawn to women and prostitutes. He is prone to fits of anger and rage. He is prone to drunkenness and parties. He's controlled by his flesh, even though he was stirred by the Spirit. But we also see that he ignored God's word. He he sees this Philistine woman. He wants to marry her, but we find out in verse 3 that his parents protest. His dad says this, isn't there an acceptable woman among our people? Now, you may say, well, that sounds pretty snotty. Is, Is Manoah a racist? Is he a bigot? You know, why is he saying this? And it's neither of those. You see, God's prohibition isn't against interracial marriage. God's prohibition is against interfaith marriage. And we see that over and over again in Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it says this. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Do you get that? You see, it's not saying that you can't marry someone who is a, of a different color, a different nationality. Moses married a woman who was of a different color, a different nationality. But it is obvious as we read the story of Moses that that she had turned to the one true God of Israel. God's prohibition is against marrying people who are of a different faith than we are. The New Testament even makes it clear. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have in common? With darkness. Amos said it this way Can two walk together unless they be agreed? I mean, how can how can you walk together in faith when you don't share the same faith? How can you walk together in values when you don't share the same values? God's word was clear, but Samson was drawn more by his flesh than he was by the word of God. And then later we read this, beginning in chapter 14, verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. His father and mother acquiesced. They gave in. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore a lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. Isn't that kind of strange for you? I mean, he tore this lion up like he would have torn a young goat. I mean, was tearing young goats something that they did? You know, you gather together on, on, you know, for the Clemson Carolina game and you're cooking some barbecue, you're playing some cornhole, you're tearing some goats. You know, and, and this is kind of what it's saying. I mean, you know, he tore this line apart just like it was a young goat that he was tearing apart. And then it goes on and, and notice what it says here. But he told neither his father nor mother what he had done. Obviously, they had been separated. Then he went down and talked with the woman and liked her. Sometime later, he went back to marry her. He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. Remember, he's a Nazarite. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they ate too. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now, remember, what does the word of God say? He's a, he's a Nazarite. He is not to touch anything dead. I mean, can you imagine driving down the road? And I know we don't have lion carcasses on the road, but you're driving down the road, you see a big, fat possum. Roadkill. That possum has something in it. And you stop and you look and you discover that some bees have, have um, made, you know, a honeycomb in that, that, that carcass of that possum. And you grab that out and say, this is going to be some good honey. Can you? That's nasty, isn't it? And, and yet that's what Samson did, but... But worse than taking the honey from a dead animal is that he had broken the word of God. He had a Nazarite vow that was clear in Scripture in number 6, and he was completely ignoring what God's word says. We go down to verse 10, and now he's having this party with, with his buds, you know, this bachelor party because he's about to get married. And the Bible says there's a feast now, there are multiple Hebrew words that can be translated feast. This word clearly describes a keg party. They're coming together to feast on wine and women and get drunk. That's what they're doing. And so here he is. He's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to touch anything dead. He's not to drink anything fermented from the vine. And yet, he has already broken two of his vows right here because he is controlled by the flesh and not by the spirit. Over and over again, we see this as we read Samson's story. And then finally, he's filled with pride. We, we discover that, that that woman, he gets mad because she betrays him and and tells some other people what a riddle is he gives them. And, and eventually he comes back and thinks that he can come back to this woman even though he's stormed off. And her dad's given her to somebody else. And he gets mad. And he really does this elaborate scheme. He, he catches some foxes. And the Hebrew word, you really don't know whether it's fox or it could be a different kind of rodent type animals. But, but he catches a, a bunch of, let's say, foxes. He ties their tails together. He put torches. He puts torches in between their tails. Then he sets them loose in the fields of the Philistines. Now, can you imagine these foxes tied together? First of all, that would drive them crazy. And then they're tied together and there's a torch burning up their tail. And so they're running like crazy through the fields, burning everything. Well, it's kind of funny, but the Philistines don't like it too much. 
And so they come and they try to get Samson and, and the um, people of Judah are afraid. So they send 300 men to get Samson and capture Samson. And Samson says, okay, I'll go with you, but you don't kill me. They said, we're not going to kill you. So they take him, they give him to the Philistines. And it says this in chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. Samson, or excuse me, chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. It says, as Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph, but the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrist. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. Now, wait just a second. A, a jawbone of a recently killed donkey, so that means what? He's breaking his vow again. So he finds this jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picks it up and he kills 1,000 Philistines with it. Then Samson sings a song. And again, in the Hebrew, it doesn't translate this way into English, but in the Hebrew, it's almost like a rap. And this is what Samson says. With the jawbone of a donkey, I piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed 1,000 men. And then when he finished his boasting, he threw away the jawbone and the place was named Jawbone Hill. Now, did you get that? When he finished his boasting. It's as if Samson has completely forgotten that all of his strength is a gift from God. And so instead of bringing honor and glory to God, what is he doing? He's boasting in what he does. And so here is a, a child born with an illustrious future in store. But because he is controlled by the flesh, he ignores the word of God, he is filled with pride, he loses it all. And that takes us to the end of the story, his captivity and death. And we see that in chapter 16. We, we've all heard the story of Samson and Delilah. Delilah. Delilah was another Philistine woman that he fell in love with. But evidently she didn't love him as much as he loved her because she was going to portray him for, for 1,100 pieces of silver. The Philistines said, find out where his power, his strength comes from, and we'll give this to you. And so she began to swoon Samson. Oh, please tell me. Please tell me where, where you get your strength from. Now, that may not sound romantic to you, but it did to Samson. And so initially, Samson says, well... If you do this, if you get seven new bowstrings and you tie them together, they've never been dried, and you tie me up with that, then my strength will disappear. So they tried that, and it didn't work. And then he said, well, if you get brand new ropes and you tie me up with brand new ropes, I won't have strength. They tried that. He broke through it. Then he said, if you weave my hair together, you see what's happening? He's kind of getting closer and closer and closer to telling the secret of where his his strength comes from. If you weave my hair together, then my strength will go. And it didn't work. And finally, Delilah said, you don't love me. If you love me, you'd tell me. And Samson said, oh, honey, I love you. And he didn't love her. He lusted after her. But he told her the secret. If my head is shaved, I'll lose all my strength. And so they shaved his head. He lost all of his strength. The Bible says that God's power left him. Verse 20 says, he awoke from his sleep and thought, listen, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Wow. You see, he thought that his power came from himself. I mean, I'm so full of it. 
that I can do whatever I want. And even though I've told her my secret and my head is shaved, hey, I'm Samson. And I can take anyone that comes against me. But the Lord had left him. And there was no freeing himself. And then we discover that his enemies abused him. Verse 21, then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding from the prison. The, the history tells us, and this is, this, is, this is awful, but history tells us what they did when they did this was they would take hot pokers and they would burn out their eyes. Then they would take knives and they would dig out the rest. And then they had bronze shackles put on him and they made him begin to work like a beast of burden. He was abused. But here's the thing you need to understand. Even after all that, God's grace was shown to him. Look at verse 22. It says, but the hair on his head began to grow after it had been shaved. Wow. Now, what does that tell you? God's mercies are new every morning. Uh, somebody said it like this. I, I, I'm going to go ahead. Let me see if I can find it. I wrote it down somewhere, and I want to give it to you. They said, God's mercy, like Samson's hair, grow new every morning. And that's what happens. God's grace was shown to him. So his hair began to grow. And then look at verse 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh, God, please strengthen me just one more time and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. He's still led by his flesh. Then Samson, reaching toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might. Down came the temple on the rulers, all the people in it. Thus he killed more when he died than when he was alive. Even though he continually, continually until the very end was led by his flesh, God's grace and God's mercy was shown to him. Now what can we learn from the story of Samson? I want to give you several things that I think are important and we're going to wrap this up. First of all, great potential doesn't always result in great accomplishment. Okay? Just because we have a a great opportunity doesn't mean that we're going to capitalize on it. And in the same way, just because we have an awful upbringing doesn't mean that we're going to have a terrible life. Great potential doesn't always result in great accomplishments. Second, when we're controlled by the flesh, it always leads to places we regret. It always does. Mark my word. Here's the third thing. God is sovereign. He even uses our sinful choices in his divine plan. And you need to hear that. I want you to go back with me and look at Judges 14, verses 3 and 4. In this passage, it says this. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. And then listen to what it says. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Now, this doesn't mean that God was behind the decision. It doesn't mean it was a good decision. 
It was simply saying that God used the decision. You see, what you need to understand is all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. God uses the painful things for the good of us that love the Lord. God uses the bad, sinful things for the good of us who love the Lord. God uses everything in his divine plan. And you don't need to think for a moment that one single thing that ever happens takes God by surprise. He always knows what is going to happen and he is prepared for it and he is moving everything toward his divine plan. Here's the fourth thing. It's never too late to cry out to God. It's never too late. Here's Samson. He's lived his entire adult life in rebellion against God. He is in bondage. He's lost his sight. He's working as a beast of burden. And he cries out to God, God, please intervene. And God answers. You see, some people think that they've gone too far. They've waited too long to cry out to God and seek mercy. But... The only time you'll have waited too long is if you're already dead. If you call upon God before you die, you call upon him with a humble heart. He'll hear you and he will answer you. But there's one final thing we need to see here. And this is the most important thing of all. We need a better judge. The story starts out good. I mean, Samson had a special birth. He had supernatural power. The hand of God was upon him. The spirit of God was with him. As we read the story in chapter 13, we have all of these high expectations. Finally, we're going to see the people of God turn back to God. We're going to see the people of God live the way God intended for them to live in the beginning. And yet we don't see it. Why? Because even though Samson may have been physically perfect, he was spiritually flawed. And we can never depend on a flawed deliverer to save us. That's why, that, that's why you can't pay for your sins. You're a sinner yourself. If, if, if you want your sins to be paid for, you're going to have to die. And there's no hope after that. You, you, can't, you can't make restitution for your sin Because you're a sinful person, you need someone to step in who isn't sinful. And hence we have Jesus. He had a special birth. He had supernatural power. He could heal the sick, bring people back from the dead. He could calm the storms that nature brought. He could command the demons to flee. He had all power. And yet, here was a man born supernaturally with all power, and he died by choice on a cross. And the reason is, the judge became the judged. The one who came to deliver was delivered for our sins. And that's the story of Judges. All of these judges, no matter how noble and how worthy, were flawed. And we need someone who is not flawed. 
We need a Savior. There are some of you here today, you're you're trying your hardest to please God and it's not going to happen. You're sinful through and through. You You don't need to start over. You don't need a a new beginning. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. We need a better judge. So if you're here and you've never humbled yourself before Jesus, acknowledging that Jesus came to this earth not just to judge sin, but to be judged for our sin. Jesus came to this earth not just to deliver us, but to be delivered In our place as the payment for our sin. If you've never humbled yourself to this Jesus. I want to encourage you today to do that. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes with me. And with every head bowed and with every eye closed. If you're here and and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus. Then today, right here, right now. And I beg you to pray this prayer to him. Dear God. I know That my best is not good enough. I know that my parents' best was not good enough. I know there's no one on this planet who can take my sins away and set me free other than Jesus. And today I'm humbly asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to save me. I'm trusting your death on the cross, your resurrection from the grave to not only take my sins away, but to change my life. Fill me with your spirit that will never be taken away. Guide me so that from this point on, I can live a life that honors you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.